0: The God who lives in eternity intends to speak a word to your hearts. I invite you to get yourself into position to hear that word by turning to the book of Genesis and follow along as I read in chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to the cattle and to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for the man there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man... And while he slept, took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife. And they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed.
1: Last week we focused attention on chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 27, because that's the utterly important foundation for understanding who we are as humans, especially male and female. Let me read that verse with you again. It says, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And so Moses adds at the end of that statement, God created man in his own image, male and female he created them, in order to make crystal clear that when he said he created man, he didn't mean merely male-human, he meant female and male-human. To make that even more clear, turn with me to chapter 5. And let's look at the first two verses here where Moses again does something like this, only even more explicitly. Chapter 5, verse 1, it says... This is the book of the generations of Adam. And now you should know that in Hebrew, the word Adam is the word for man. Sometimes translated man, sometimes translated as the personal name Adam. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, Adam, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female he created them and he blessed them and named them Adam. Named them man when they were created. And so it's clear from Genesis that man, that is, male and female, are created in the image of God. They are utterly unlike all the other creatures on the face of the earth, being like God, both male and female. And then I said that... If we have been both created in the image of God, male and female, at least six things are implied. And I just mentioned them last week, and I want to take two or three minutes here to unfold them. I said it implies we are equal in personhood, equal in dignity, should have mutual respect, harmony complementarity, and unified destiny. Now, let me take each of those and just put a few sentences behind them to unfold them. Equality of personhood between male and female means that man is not less human or not less a person for, say, having hair on his chest like a gorilla and woman is not less person or human for having no hair on her chest like a fish. In other words, the differences between male and female have no bearing upon personhood and equality of personhood. No matter what they might seem to align us with. Second, equality of dignity means that both male and female are to be equally honored, as in the image of God. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.17, honor all. There is even an honor that is to be paid to the most despicable of criminals, say a Ted Bundy, precisely because he is human, Period. And that honor may, in fact, mean the death penalty. You treat a man differently than you treat a duck or a dog, even if he's a criminal. Third, mutual respect means that Men and women ought to be equally zealous of respecting one another. And that respect ought not to be one directional. Created in the image of God, male and female should look at each other with a kind of awe. Tempered, but not destroyed by sin. C.S. Lewis made much of this, that we are corrupted gods and goddesses, as it were, walking around on the face of the earth. And we ought to look into each other's faces with a kind of tempered awe that we are created in the image of God. Fourth, harmony means that there should be a peaceful cooperation between men and women, that we ought to oil the gears of our relationships so that there's teamwork, rapport, mutual helpfulness, joy, Fifth, complementarity means that the music of our relationship ought not to be mere unison, but that there ought to be the integrated sounds of soprano and bass and tenor and alto. It means that we ought to respect and make much of our differences and affirm them and value them. It means that male and female will not try to duplicate each other, but will highlight in each other those unique qualities that are made for mutual enrichment. And sixth, unified destiny means that we are, in Jesus Christ, through faith, fellow heirs of the grace of life. Men and women are in Jesus Christ, destined to equal enjoyment of the revelation of the glory of the children of God. So in creating human beings in his own image, male and female, God had something very wonderful in mind. He still has it in mind, and in Jesus Christ, he means to redeem it and recover it from the ravages of sin. And so last week, we looked just briefly at what sin had done in this relationship that God had created. And I want to clarify that further this morning. In fact, this morning I had intended to spend just a moment on this and then virtually all the time on what the relationship was supposed to look like before sin entered the world. But the message just got all out of hand yesterday. And so today's title really belongs over next week's message. And if I were to retitle today's message, it would be Manhood and Womanhood, Conflict and confusion after the fall. Something like that. In other words, I want to set the stage in a more extended way today about what sin has done to us. And I want to unfold for you the great confusion that I see in the world and in the evangelical church because of sin. Let's look at Genesis 3.16. This is the text that describes the curse in a very vivid way. To set the stage, you remember that man and woman, Adam and Eve, have both sinned. They distrusted God. They turned away from his loving kindness and provision and began to trust in themselves and their own wisdom for how to be happy. They rejected his word. They ate of the forbidden fruit The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they said, we will be like God. We'll decide for ourselves what's good and harmful for us. And now God comes and he calls them to account and he describes for them what the curse will be upon all of human life because we have fallen into sin. And this verse 16 of chapter 3 is very, very important for describing what sin has done to the relationship between men and women. I will greatly multiply your pain... Multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now that's a description of the curse. That's a description of misery, not a model marriage. This is the way it's going to be in history wherever sin gets the upper hand between men and women. But let's stop here now and ask what is really being said by your desire shall be for him and he will rule over you. What is really being said here? The key to what's being said is found in the parallel between the last words of verse 16 and the last words of chapter 4 verse 7. So I'm going to invite you to just go over a a few verses, maybe a page in your Bible, to Genesis 4, verse 7. Now, you remember the situation here? Cain's offering has been rejected, and he is angry at his brother Abel, very angry and very resentful. And God is now in mercy, not striking him yet, saying, There's chance still to repent, Cain. Be careful. Sin is crouching at the door. Don't let sin get the upper hand. Now, look at these words at the end of verse 7, because they are amazingly parallel to chapter 3, verse 16. God says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. Then the RSV says, but you must master it. Literally, to bring out the parallel, the words are identical in Hebrew, you shall rule over it. Now, let's let's just put this very clearly before us here. These words at the end of 3.16 and these words at the end of 4.7. Because this is very important for understanding what 3.16 means. He says to the woman, your desire is for your husband. He shall rule over you. And 4.7 says to Cain, sin's desire is for you. You shall rule over it. Now, let's just think about that for a minute. What does desire mean in four seven? Sin's desire, Cain, is for you. It's crouching. What's the image of this crouching? I looked up that word crouching in Hebrew. It's found, for example, in Genesis forty nine. Uh, I forget the verse forty nine nine. I think where a lion is crouching. So it's a picture of someone ready to to to. Uh, subdue, to devour, to conquer. So I think the meaning of desire in 4.7 is sin wants to master you. It wants to enslave you. It wants to conquer you. It wants to subdue you. It wants to devour you. But you instead should smash it. Now, let's go back to 3.16 and see whether or not That makes sense here, because I think we ought to, instead of jumping to conclusions that desire means sexual desire, primarily, in 3.16, let a clearer parallel that's very close determine for us what the meaning of desire is. So I would take 3.16 to mean... That he's saying to the woman, that as a part of the curse, your desire shall be for your husband. That is, you will want and find ways to, to overpower, to subdue, to exploit, to devour him. And he will use his brute strength to knock you down when you try that. And that's the curse. He's stronger than you are, and it isn't going to work always. So what really is being described in this ugly verse is a conflict between male and female that has marked so much of world history. Maleness, as God created it, is depraved and corrupted. And femaleness, as God created it, is depraved and corrupted. Now, what is the essence of depravity? What is the essence of sin so that we could get a handle on female depravity and male depravity in their unique spin-offs in the relationship between men and women? Well, we all know what the essence of depravity is. The, effi- the essence of depravity is self-aggrandizing, self Reliant self-exaltation. That's the essence of sin. You saw it in chapter 3. God, you can say whatever you want about this tree. We know what's good for us and we will do what we want to do because we want to be happy in the way we want to get there. That's the essence of sin. Rebellion against God and then the spin-off for men and women in this self-aggrandizing, self-reliant, self-exalting depravity is very profound. Corrupted maleness, therefore, means self-aggrandizing efforts to subdue, control, and exploit women for men's private desires. And The essence of corrupted and sinful femaleness is the self-aggrandizing effort to subdue, control, and exploit men for her private desires. And the difference is generally in the different weaknesses that we can find to exploit. And they are, of course, very different. As a rule, men have more brute strength, right? And so they rape, they abuse, they threaten and sit lazily and snap their finger. Because if she doesn't do it, he can knock her down. The brute strength takes one form of exploitation and subduction. That's very fashionable to talk about that today, right? You can make a lot of friends, get a lot of applause if you point those things out. It's not so fashionable to talk about the sinfulness of women, which is just as clear in these chapters. It's just as true that women are depraved as men. They are not somehow evicted from the curse into this never-never land of non-condemnation. Women are evil. Men are evil. Women are evil. Men are evil. We are depraved, male and female. There are female depravities and male depravities. Women don't have as much brute strength, but they know the ways to subdue men. She can very often run circles around him with her words. Women are, by and large, more adept at their language And if she cannot do it with words, sinful woman knows the weakness of his lust. You know, if you've ever doubted the power of women to control men, ask yourself this question. What is the number one worldwide marketing force? What is it? Well, you say sex. That's way too ambiguous. It is the female body. That is the number one worldwide universal force to market everything from toothpaste to cars to clothes. I've sometimes wondered, this is real risky to say now, but I'll go ahead. Why women allow Dayton's to get away with what it does on the second page of the Tribune, having women pose in their underwear, sitting at the breakfast table? Why do women allow that exploitation of their bodies to sell clothes? And I have wondered if alongside the indignation that if I were a woman, I would feel, I've already written long letters with ten reasons to Dayton's and the Tribune why this is destructive in society to do this. I've often wondered, alongside the indignation, if sinful woman doesn't also sense power. Power. We've got power. They use us. And they don't want to lose it. And so they keep quiet. I don't know if that's true or not. You think about it and tell me whether you think that's true. Why do the women in this city stand for solid gold? Why do the women in this city stand for what Dayton's does? I wonder. I'm talking about you, of course. I'm talking about sinful women. Sinful women who have not been redeemed by Jesus Christ. I mean that. That's not a joke. I believe Jesus Christ revolutionizes women and men. Sinful women without the power of Jesus Christ, when they see that, I wonder, is there not a sense of identification with we've got power? We may not be as strong as he is, but we can really nail him at his weakness and control him and make him buy anything we want to make him buy. I don't know. I just wonder. This is not the way God meant it to be. The exploitation of women by men is very conspicuous. It's harsh and violent often. But a moment's reflection will show you that the exploitation of men by sinful women is just as pervasive in society. The big difference is our society ordains and sanctions the one perversity and doesn't the other. Now, that's not the way God meant it to be. That's the result of rebellion, it's the curse, it's the mess we're in because of sin. How did God mean it to be? How did God mean it to be among us as male and female? Well, part of the answer we've already looked at, we've said He created us male and female in His own image, and it means equality of personhood, equality of dignity, mutual respect, harmony, complementarity, Unified destiny. But now let me step back from that in a minute. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But that's only part of the answer. If you were to say... It's, it's like saying to two dancers, ballet dancers or people who are about to perform a drama. It's like saying to them... Now remember, when you go out on the stage, you are both excellent dancers... You are held in equal esteem in the guild and uh, respected highly in the world of drama and uh, dance. You must uh, respect each other and be complimentary uh, of each other's moves on the stage. And remember, you will both enjoy the applause and the limelight at the end. Now, that's important to say. That will transform in a significant way how the performance proceeds. But, if that's all they know, they won't dance. To dance or to do the drama, you have to know who's going where when. Who will fall and who will catch? Who will stand and who will run? Who will speak and who will be silent? If all you know is that you're to respect one another, you will not dance. There will be mass confusion on the stage if you are given six moral visions for how to respect one another. You will stand there and bump into one another. I say it's only part of the answer, and today it is given as the whole answer. We have to ask this question. In the drama of life between man and woman, before the fall as God intended it to be, did God mean for some responsibilities to fall heavier on the man and some responsibilities to fall heavier on the woman, or didn't he? We've said both should be equally respectful of each other. But we must ask, are they supposed to show respect for each other in precisely the same ways? Or are there some unique ways to respect as man and some unique ways to respect as woman? We need to ask, yes, there's to be peace and harmony through mutual service. But might there not be forms of service peculiarly designed for harmony from the man and forms of service peculiarly designed for harmony from the woman? You see how incomplete the answer is to say equal in personhood, equal in dignity, Harmony, mutual respect, complementarity, and unified destiny. It doesn't tell you very much where the rubber meets the road in the kitchen or the bedroom or the office or the car or the beach. And I want to try, as best I can, to unfold a vision of biblical complementarity and harmony in the weeks to come. Because I'm convinced that the Bible does teach... That men have unique God given responsibilities, and women have unique God given responsibilities toward men. They're not identical, they're not dependent on gifts, they are dependent on who we are as man and woman in creation. They're not limited to biological functions in the act of reproduction. They are far deeper, richer, broader, higher, more pervasive than that. And these different responsibilities for man and woman go right to the heart of the meaning of manhood and womanhood as God created us. And they are under tremendous attack today on all hands, inside and outside the church. They have been for some time. And the result in our culture is what? Confusion. Tremendous confusion. I would guess that probably two generations now of men and women have been raised in this country without a positive vision of what it means to be male and female. And I'm just saying a positive vision. I'm not saying any particular vision. I'm just saying a positive vision. Without any positive vision of what it means to be male and Or female. What I mean is, we've been told many negative things that we ought not to be. Liberation has been talked about for two decades in terms of liberation from, for example, Manhood is not sexual exploitation. Manhood is not cool, rational, unemotionalism. Manhood is not ruthless, task-oriented drive to conquer. So be liberated, men, from that. Period. Or... On the other hand, womanhood is not boring domesticity. Womanhood is not homebound motherhood. Womanhood is not mindless emotionalism. Womanhood is not sexual compliance. So, be liberated, woman, from that. Period. And what's left when you've told everybody what not to be? What have you got? A massive void of confusion. And what has it produced for us in the last 20 years? A tidal wave of homosexuality. Epidemic of divorce. Increase of violent crime for men who don't have a clue what they're on this earth to do. domestic abuse of all kinds, and tens of thousands of suicides every year, 75% of which are men, frustrated, defeated, depressed men who don't know what it means anymore to be a man, utterly confused and frightened. I think it's simply an abdication of our moral and spiritual responsibility to tell our young people today to avoid negative stereotypes and never to give them a positive, practical, biblical vision of what it means to be a man and a woman. What does it mean, Mom? For me, I'm a woman. What does it mean? And if all mom can say is, well, it doesn't mean this, and it doesn't mean this, and it doesn't mean this, and it doesn't mean this. Go find your way, my daughter. Or the same thing with our sons. Just don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Now, discover for yourself what manhood really is. Why have we done that? Why? Why? Well, it's because it's the path of least resistance, among other things. It is easy, 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 easy to poke holes in negative stereotypes. It is the American pastime. And it is risky and hard to reconstruct the original archetype. Because if you just spend your time poking holes in negative stereotypes... You will get applause everywhere. It's easy. It's fun. People like to hear it. But if you start to develop a positive vision for your daughter of what it means to be feminine and not masculine, or for your son, what it means to be masculine and not feminine, there will be a hundred people ready to judge you And so it's just easier not to do it. It's just easier not to hassle the struggle to try to reconstruct the great original archetype that God had in view. I, I've been here for nine years now at Bethlehem. And I called Tom last night. I said, Tom, is this true for you too? I don't want to put anything in your mouth. He said, it's generally true for me too. We we together, we're the Marian pair here pretty much, though others now are coming into their own here, but Tom marries more people than I do now, I think. And so we've married together probably hundreds of couples in the last nine years. We sit with them for at least four hours before they get married. They take a test and we we go over it together. And what we have discovered is that it is a rare exception for a couple in the last nine years to have a clear vision of what a husband and a wife are in their differences. What they're supposed to do. It's a rare couple who can say manhood means this and womanhood means this. And here's how the two complement each other in marriage. Instead, most of the couples, some of you are sitting here, readily admit to us, we don't know if being male or female imposes any particular responsibilities on, on us. And if we do think that they do, we're just not sure what they are. And so I have learned both from watching the world and from sitting year after year after year with these couples that there is mass confusion in this country over sexual identity and who we are And what we are for. And I only mention this in closing now. To highlight the challenge that's before us as a church. God has a vision of redeemed manhood and womanhood. He wants us to recover it from the ravages of sin. Jesus Christ came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. To make life new again in the marriage and in the workplace and in the church. And everywhere else that men and women happen to come together as male and female. God ordained something in the fall, I mean, in in creation, and he is bringing it out of his people through redemption. And I would just plead with you to pray earnestly in these days. We're going to work now for the next five weeks to try to say something positive about what it means. And I... I know that it is risky business. I know that there can be disagreement on this. And my deep desire is simply that you will become not a reactor but a proactor. That you would say, look, I've got some kids to deal with here. I've got daughters to teach how to be daughters and sons to teach how to be sons. Or I've got nieces or nephews or grandsons or granddaughters or friends who are all confused. I need help. And I would like to just try to be God's instrument to at least lay before you one vision that might provide help in finding out the beautiful vision of sexual complementarity that God has for us. Let's pray. Father, who we are as male and female goes right to the heart of our identity as humans. If we go wrong here... If we are confused here, it is utterly pervasive in all of our life. And I pray earnestly that our people would pray earnestly about these matters. I pray that it would not be seen as a peripheral thing. Take it or leave it. Choose whatever view you want to choose. It doesn't really have any bearing on anything. When in fact it has bearing on everything... Father, I pray that your great wisdom and your great grace would manifest itself in our church. I believe we're swimming against the tide here, and therefore we need your courage and your humility and your teachableness. Lord, lift up your people to consider these things. Make us bold Make us strong, make us wise, make us loving, make us full in our biblical understanding.
0: I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.